Hi, I'm Simone Kolnick. And I'm Addison Landers. And we'd like to welcome you to Hijinx, a podcast brought to you by Howard County Library System. Hello, listeners. I hope you're enjoying the fall foliage and seasonal beverages as much as I am. As the days hasten and the nights get longer, we have prepared a not-so-spooky seasonal episode. In our first segment, we meet with Alex Sullivan at the Howard County Welcome Center to tour their current exhibition, A Brief History of Ellicott City's Undertakers and Funeral Homes. This fascinating exhibit is not as macabre as it sounds and touches on many aspects of Ellicott City history. In the second part of our episode, we meet with Ellen Flangiles to discuss the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe at the Museum of Howard County History. Hey, this is Addison. I'm here at the Howard County Welcome Center with Alex, and we are touring a brief history of historic Ellicott City's undertakers and funeral homes. Hi, Alex. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So this exhibit is part of the 250 EC celebration? Yeah. Uh, there's been a whole year's worth of programming dedicated to EC 250, and this is a, one of the exhibits that kind of ends the year on a very interesting note. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's very fitting for this time of year. Do you want to walk us through the it's a six-panel uh, exhibit with photos and a little bit of history on each wall, and then behind me there's a case with a couple of artifacts that we'll get to last. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to note that it's, it's uh, although it could easily be a heavy subject, yes. it's not very dark. It's like I would take my young, uh, a young child to come see this. Uh, if I, you know, especially if I were downtown, there's mm-hmm. like plenty of places to grab ice cream afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, um, so this exhibit was definitely all about timing and making sure that um, we wanted to keep it a little bit spooky, but not just to let you know, the Welcome Center is in the current historic post office. However, before it was a post office, it was actually the site of the first undertakers in town. And so um, as we learned a little bit more of the history, it turns out that there were actually about five funeral homes operating at once between the years of 1873 and 1935. Uh, And that was between Catonsville and Ellicott City, so within three miles. And I found that to be fascinating and wanted to learn a little bit more about why that would be the business that was booming here in Ellicott City. And uh, so we start here. And we have a few images and we talk about um, some of the practices and essentially funerals before funeral homes existed were all conducted within the home. And so that was a part of the extension of women's domestic duties and they would do the washing and the caring for, um, for many of their family. And then the community would come and they would say goodbye. And then they usually, they would be buried in the family plot or if they were affiliated with the church they would be um, buried at the cemetery so that that is um, fascinating to hear I'm sure it was uh, maybe therapeutic for some women to do that but I could imagine it being a very traumatic experience for others well there there was also the idea that not everybody was dying of old age so you would have you know you would be exposed to disease you were exposed to um, different types of um, different types of traumas and so when they kind of wanted to outsource it there was so embalming actually kind of changed everything that became um the technology that was uh sort of being utilized during the civil war 
so 18 around 1861 to 1865 and so all of a sudden you had this ability to preserve the dead and be able to transport them that was actually why embalming was started being used in, in the united states was during the civil war to be able to get the dead home in order to be able to be buried at home so they wouldn't be buried on battlefields yeah. essentially and um but the other interesting thing to note is, uh, as a part of the women's domestic duties, is that uh, you would use the parlor to put people out. And so um, you would have the parlor, and that was the funeral parlor. That was also where you would see guests. But um, this, when all of these services became outsourced into different businesses, that became the living room. If you've ever wondered why it's called the living room, as opposed to the parlor. Okay, fascinating. <laughs> and, and we're looking at a few pictures of parlors, and these mm-hmm. are actually at funeral, early mm-hmm. funeral homes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's remarkable how much they, they look like a parlor that could be yeah. a living room in someone's house. And they also look very similar to how a funeral parlor would look today. Exactly. Yeah, it hasn't changed too much. Um, there's one great picture of, um, so this is the Whiskey's. Um, this would have been 1970s. They have the wing back chairs. They have the wood paneling, and so like they tried to make these parlors um, as appealing as possible and as homey as possible, just to be able to um, make people feel like they have at least a little bit of um, uh, a little bit of comfort where they are. One of the most interesting things here is we actually have a list of the different undertaking businesses um, that where a lot of the structures are actually still standing today here in Old Willow City. Um, so you are standing here at Hillsinger's Undertakers, which is the current Welcome Center. Easton and Sons is probably one of the, um, they were the busiest from um, my research. They were everywhere and they did a lot of work for, in Old Ellicott City. And by busiest, yes, they mean they dealt with the most dead people. Um, uh, but it would, they were also the site of probably one of your favorite coffee shops, whether it was Riverside Cafe or Bean Hollow. It is, that particular building is slated for demolition, but they are talking about possibly keeping the facade, the front. Okay. But um, but that is one of this, the buildings that is going to be taken down um, to be able to help with the flood mitigation. But So make sure you take pictures. And But it's a very recognizable building. Yes. They've walked by a hundred times. Hopefully they can save the facade, but hopefully, exactly. Know, there, there's a lot of things to consider. Exactly. So get out there and see why you can. Exactly, and then um, we have Star Funeral Home, which is across the street. Um, it's Main Main Street Oriental Rugs. They've been there a long, long time, um, but they actually uh, were also uh, funeral um, services, but they also did a lot of transportation. So um, they rented out cars, um, and so a lot of these funeral homes didn't just they weren't just funeral homes. They also did transportation. They also did cabinet making. They just had all these different services in-house that you could use to be okay. able to say goodbye to your loved ones. And, and was the cabinet making, was that kind of like because they were making coffins? So yes. So they just kind of extended it? Exactly. Other... Yeah. Many um, uh, many undertakers uh, became undertakers because they were retired of their, of essentially outsourcing all of this money, like cabinet, uh, you know, making caskets and coffins and um, also transporting um, people like um, and uh, ambulance drivers and those kinds of things. I mean, it's, yeah. oh, it's so morbid. Um, <laughs> and then um, Higabotham's actually is, uh, was opened in 1929. Um, they are still in, uh, well, in a way still in business. Uh, the hit, they became Slack Funeral Home. 
because John Slack actually was an apprentice to um, Mr. Higginbotham. And so they actually are still in business. Their original structure is um, down the street here. It's, um, I think it's unoccupied right now, but it's a yellow um, building close to Crazy Masons. And then um, the Slack Funeral Home uh, is still in business and they are still helping the community. But that home actually has, has its own history. So it was actually the home to Dorothy Kraft, who was one of the most prestigious um, community members in Howard County. It's rumored that she was the richest woman in Howard County when she died because she invested in this little thing called the telephone company. Yeah. And how did you, um, or how was the, all this information researched? So um, I worked with a fantastic um, friend. Her name is Kyla Cools. She works for Patapsco Heritage Greenway, and she's actually a college partner professor. Okay. And so she and I did all of this research together. Um, I started last year and just started looking up different um, uh, information and looking at maps and trying to figure out where the funeral homes were over a period of time. Um, are there any specific resources at the library that helped you? Um, yes, actually. Um, so I went to the um, the central branch, and uh, I there is a dissertation there by a man named Dr. Meyer Kravitsky. Um, he died in, in 1988, but his dissertation was actually on the development of the Jewish community in Columbia. Okay. And so he actually um, did original interviews and um, oral histories with the, Ka with the Kaplan family, with the Taylor family, and other major Jewish families in Ellicott City to kind of help document the development of the Jewish community in Howard County. And so I actually used his dissertation for pretty much ton of my research on um, the Jewish community in okay. City. Yeah, which we'll get to in a which few we'll get panels. To, yeah, exactly. All right, now we're at the panel for the Witskies Funeral Home in Catonsville, or the Catonsville Connection, as it's called. Exactly, yes. So um, when we're talking about Ellicott City, you kind of have to talk about Catonsville as well. Um, they were connected by the trolley, even before they were connected, as, even as they were connected by the road. Um, so the trolley trail was literally the trail for the trolley that connected um, at the end, at end of Edmondson Avenue down to Old, to, um, old Ellicott City. And, um, and so there was the Witzke family, which... Harry H. Witzke's is up here on Old Columbia Pike, and um, but they originally started at an Edmondson Avenue location in Catonsville, and they um, kind of kept moving west, essentially. So um, there are four unaffiliated locations of the Witzke's in um, Columbia and Howard County and Baltimore County. And um, another connection to Catonsville is Hillsinger's Funeral Home. Um, so... The Hillsingers Undertakers were here, was here at the Welcome Center before it was a post office, and the business actually got sold, became Hillsinger McNabb, which moved to Catonsville. And the McNabb Funeral Home is still in Catonsville today. Okay. And so there is, there's been this constant shift up and down Frederick Road, essentially, between these two communities. So uh, you really couldn't talk about Ellicott like City without talking about Catonsville. Um, we have a couple of great pictures. We have a great um, invoice here for. What was, even in 1932, this would have been a pretty expensive, like, that would have been a lot of money. $406. Yeah. I am i haven't done the conversion, but that's, a, I, but it seems yeah. a pretty penny to pay yeah. in 1932 for a funeral service of, Miss, of a, yes, and. Um, Three limousines, $36. $36, yes. <laughs> um, and. Yeah. Suit, underwear, and hose. I mean, that is as much as the embalming was. So wow, yeah, that's, yeah, it's a detailed uh, Very, voice here. Exactly. 
And um, next to it, I see there's a picture of an uh, an old hearse. Mm -hmm. um, we don't quite know the date of it, but it is a it's a beautiful vehicle. It is a I beautiful mean, vehicle. I wouldn't mind taking my last ride in. I know, I know. I mean. That is, it has beautiful black curtains. I mean, it is riding in style. All right, so um, Alex and I are so working our way up to the last two panels. Mm -hmm. um, and these are on like diversity and African-American um, mm -hmm. funeral practices. Yes. Yes, so one thing we wanted to make sure we um, explored was the fact that not everybody in Ellicott City would have been um, white and Christian. And so um, there was a very small but vibrant Jewish community here in in um, Ellicott City. So I went, actually, as I mentioned, I went to the Central Library and I worked with the Jewish Federation of Howard County to be able to make sure that we got a lot of information about um, Jewish funeral practices. Jewish funeral prayer practices are completely different than um, what we would think of as, as traditional funeral practices. Um, there is a, an urgency. Um, the body cannot be embalmed. And so there is an urgency to get make sure that burial takes place as soon as possible. And so there is a business, Saul Levinson's. Uh, they have been in business since 1892, and they are in Baltimore. They opened up a Columbia location, actually, in um, 2014. But um, they have been serving the community here in Ellicott City longer than anybody. Um, there were many, about 48 Jews in Howard County in 1902, mostly focused in Ellicott City. And um, at least uh, two of those families were Orthodox Jewish. And so these, um, so we do have a panel all about the different types of uh, funeral practices by, um, that are practiced by the Jewish faith, whether or not, and in that time period, whether you were a very secular Jewish person or if you were a more um, pious Jewish person, most likely you would have, um, gone through all gone through these kinds of um rituals yeah. in order to be able to um bury the dead and so we talk about a little bit um about Saul Levinson's and um and also um about the entire shift in mindset too so in the Jewish faith it is considered a privilege and a blessing to actually help take care of the dead as opposed there is no real stigma to it and so it's thought to be an honor to be able to, to um, say goodbye and be a part of this process. Um, the body is thought to be almost in like a state of confusion after death and where it doesn't really know where to go. And so it, the living have to guide it through to the afterlife. And so it's, very, it, it's a very comforting way of thinking about it and it helps. Um, and I, I found it very uh, moving actually to research this part and yeah. uh, to find out more and more about um, just the... the the gentleness that is um, that comes with the Jew Jew Jewish funeral practices. Yeah. Um, and then after burial, which usually happens within 24 to 48 hours of death, um, you sit Shiva. And um, so Shiva technically means seven, but it's seven. It's the first seven days of mourning where friends and family will come and they'll sit with the family. And um, essentially it's thought to be quiet time. You never want to speak first. You just bring food and you stay. We are standing in front of the African American Services in Ellicott City panel, the last panel in the exhibit. Uh, can you talk about this, Alex? Yes. So, um, what we wanted to explore is um, there were um, 
African-American neighborhoods in Ellicott City, um, off of Fells Lane, off of Merriman Lane, kind of more on the peripheral, off of New Cut Road. And so we wanted to make sure that we understood where those communities went to be able to, um, to bury their dead. Uh, we had kind of a hypothesis that they would have had to go to Baltimore. Um, there was actually a really a thriving um, African-American community in Baltimore, and there were a lot of, um, of uh, morticians um, that worked in, in Baltimore. And um, so we have this hypothesis that they had to go to Baltimore, and then I started looking at death certificates. I looked at hundreds of death certificates. It was over the past months. Um, it, was, it was fascinating, but also a lot. Um, and so on these death certificates, and I have three of them listed here, we have Easton and Sons listed and Star, Scott Starr Star, from Star Funeral Home. So it kind of blew up my thesis that, um, there was, uh, that they had to go to Baltimore. It turns out that pretty much any per, all of these funeral, um, services here helped the African American community as well as the white community. I'm not sure what about the quality of services or what um, and or what kind of funeral services they would have held for the African American community, but um, to this day, the Slack family still um, actually works with the Hilltop community, which is a very old um, African American community that used to live on the Hilltop um, over here in the 1970s, and they even to the point where the Slack Funeral Home actually sponsored the Fells Lane Community uh, Reunion this year. And so there was a lot of, there actually was a, there was an integration of the services here, which I wasn't expecting actually. Um, and we did want to talk about a little bit about some of these death certificates actually. So um, I have two from 1918. Um, this is the only thing I wanted to include about any sort of pandemic. But um, in October 1918, the Spanish flu came to Ellicott City, and it was rough. Um, so you have um, at least one young woman here who actually died of the Spanish flu, and another man who died. Um, and I had more, but I wanted to keep it. Um, and so I found it interesting to find those death certificates uh, 100 years later, and uh, to be able to make sure that we kind of see that the resilience of the community. Where did you find these certificates? So on um, the Maryland State Archives. And um, so they actually, the Maryland State Archives has a lot of great online resources. And um, so these were digital death certificates. If you, um, so death certificates actually weren't uh, made official or standardized until 1898, which is pretty late, all things considered. So before that, if you wanted to find death announcements, you would have had to go to the newspapers. Okay. And, um, and, or they would have been recorded in the family Bible essentially. And so it's really hard to, so I wanted to keep it to where I could actually find records for things. Okay. And do, do you think that um, this is a sign that maybe the services for African Americans were, you know, hopefully considered and run the same if they were taking the time? To I think it probably was. I mean, essentially it would have been probably down to the, um, down to what they could pay. You know, I mean, it's a service and so you can pay, you know, so there would have been different packages for okay. different funeral services. Um, but it is more so this was just the record keeping. And um, so for many of these deaths, there were records kept. Um, I will say I can't say if this is completely uh, 
thorough, how thorough these records were kept, or if people were still dying and just not calling the coroner or not getting it recorded someplace, um, because there were there were uh, there were about a hundred or fifty a month, which it's not a big community, so it's very possible. But as part as far as like the demographics go, I'm not sure how exactly how many deaths were actually recorded and how many deaths were not recorded. So. Um, could you speak a little bit to this um, this paradoxical progress? Yes. So um, there was a fantastic paper written by a local um, historian, um, and she talked about the African-American undertakers and morticians in Baltimore. So there was, it was very uplifting to read this paper because it did talk about essentially how egalitarian the process to become an undertaker was um, in the early 20th century. But you had to understand that there was an unofficially segregated community and that a funeral service is considered an essential service. And so African-American morticians were licensed. If they could pass the test, if they could do all, if they could pay the fee, then they would be able to be licensed because they, there was an intent to keep the services segregated. Okay. So, and so it's a it's a bit of like a it's a paradox yes. essentially that's why i wanted to say that it was a paradox of progress because it talks about you you're reading it and you're thinking wow how amazing is it that there was so much equality in this process to become a mortician but then you realize that that there were they understood the need to be able to have more morticians to be able to keep the separate the separation of services and uh, that did change as um but that was not true in Elegant City, actually. There was integration of the services, and they worked with everybody. And so um, it came down to good business, I'm guessing, to be able to work with everybody. And also it helped um, you know, them with a good standing in the, in the entirety of the community. Yeah. So, but I just thought it was a really interesting. It was, a very, it was one of those times when history just makes you really excited because it doesn't do what you're think, you think it's supposed to be doing. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, and now we're at the final, um, <laughs> and now we're at the finale of the <laughs> exhibition, Restorative Arts. Um, it's titled An Art and a Science. And we actually have some artifacts to look at here. So this makes it my favorite part so far. <laughs> um, but when, when you kind of start to think about it and look at them, it gets a little creepy. Yes, so uh, we did have one big rule for this exhibit and that was to show no dead bodies, um, which when you're talking about funeral services is actually a little bit more difficult than you would think. Um, but we wanted to talk about how the sausage is made, I guess, is the best way to put it. <laughs> Let's make it a little gross. Uh, but no, um, about the process of how the dead are cared for. Um, so, and I think I had mentioned this, uh, embalming came into as a new technology during the Civil War as a tra way to transport fallen soldiers home. Um, it was actually a, a bit um, predatory. There would be an embalmer set up at the battlefield before the battle starts. Um, in prep and you could actually pay a fee ahead of time. Wow. Yes. So um, they actually, and this was only for the Union um, Army. Actually, the Confederacy, I don't think, had embalmers. I could be wrong, but um, I, 
it'll double check that. But um, but I believe who would pay that at the time? The soldiers. The soldiers. The soldiers would pay it. into battle. Would they stop would. And pay. Yeah, they would pay, and that way, and they would. I think given like a dog tag so that they could identify the body. The body. And this was actually when dog tags and were that's also. That's how right. they got dog tags. And that's how they got dog tags. Yes, okay. I think. And was yeah. there was there a refund, or could you hold on to the dog tag? I have tag no idea, things? honestly. I have a feeling these were not the most, um, uh, you know, honest of business people. So okay. I of businessmen, um, and so I don't think that they would have given, you know, been like, oh, look, you you just lost a lost a leg. Let me give you, you know, this money back. Um, but uh, but that was they were eventually stopped. They the embalmers from being able to set up on the battlefield because it was very bad for morale. Yeah. It's what they just, you know, and oh, yeah. very rightly thought of. Um, so yes, we have a display case and in this display case, we taught, we have a few artifacts. Um, one of my favorites is actually the funeral ledger. So John Slack over at Slack Funeral Home actually kept the funeral ledger. Um, and it's back in the 19, from the 1920s, 30s. And so you actually have an itemization of the different services there. And um, I'm not as familiar with this, but one of my, but um, Kyla Cools, one of my, um, my project partner, her specialty is cemetery preservation. So she actually can tell you which cemetery they went to and whether or not that person was um, African-American, actually. And that's based off the number there on the right column? It's actually off the cemetery. So there were certain cemeteries that were were for African-Americans. Um, the cemeteries were not were not integrated at a certain point. So, for example, this person over here who's buried at Freetown Cemetery would have been African-American. And the Freetown Cemetery is uh, also mentioned over here as well. Another death certificate. And Freetown Cemetery is actually close. Yeah, it's... um. Kind of near Ath where Atherton High School is now. Okay. And um, yeah, and so it is actually pretty close to uh, this area. And uh, another one would have been Western Star Cemetery, which would have actually been in Catonsville. And that's actually within walking distance from my house. Okay. So, yep. Um, so, what we have in here also is we have uh, things are deserology. So, deserology is, um, is the art of makeup for the dead essentially and it was coined by noella um papagno in 1983 and she combined she was actually a hairstylist and uh she made it combined from deceased hair ology deserology okay. i thought it yes and she actually helped professionalize the industry and created a manual for those who wanted to improve their skills um she became very good at making um what they would do is they would you would give them a picture of mom you know and you would even bring in her makeup and so it gets that out of the house it helps um you know and it's their job to make your loved one look kind of like themselves like they're sleeping and and it's actually considered to be kind of one of the most rewarding parts of the most funeral directors really enjoy that process yeah and it's a very important part to the grieving process it really is it really is Especially if you didn't see them at their best when they died, and now you can see them when they look, kind of look more like themselves. So we have a few tools. I promise it's not creepy. If we have a few tools, a little bit of lip wax and makeup. Um, what's uh, interesting is how similar these tools look like your makeup tools. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or, or like there's like a palette knife that looks like yep. you know they could be used for exactly for palette. Yeah, and they would use that to if there was anything that needed to be needed to be rebuilt. Or if there was any trauma before death, they can do actually rebuild things to make them look like they should. And um, then we have a couple of other, I will say this case smells weird. Um, 
um, because we have a couple of uh, this preservative deodorant that is uh, used to help okay. cover up certain smells. It's strong. Um, well, so with the yeah. case closed, you can't. You can't smell. You can't them. smell. So don't but worry. the inside of the case is, is yeah. yeah, it's all inside. I promise. Um, and then we have a couple of other artifacts. Um, we have a book here called Personalities and Personalities and Funeral Management. It's a professional development book from 1930, oh. and uh, essentially it helps. It's a. Um, it would have been used as like a textbook for morticians to be able to learn how to be a better business person. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting to show. And that probably was really helpful to a lot of morticians because I'm sure people got into it not as business people per Exactly. Se. Um, but understanding the business side of the business. Yeah, of the business, help. You know, would actually help. And um, had some really good advice in there, too. Um, Did you learn anything? I, I, well, uh, I learned, you know, but it literally, I didn't really learn too much about it, but it was, um, you know, essentially – told people how to dress, how to um, talk to an accountant, how to talk to a, um, you know, a, somebody who did marketing materials, that kind of thing. Like the people that you would normally work with in any other business they wanted to make. And it opens with this um, idea that there was a bit of friction to bring funeral services back into the community, back into the home. And so there was like this conflict during that time period to make it not to kind of bring down the, the industry and there was a lot of like, well, this is something you should do at home, you know, kind of thing. And so that helps. Uh, and so there was this uh, mindset that we needed to professionalize the industry. And that was one of the books that they would have been reading. And then we have a couple of ashtrays. Um, I haven't seen an ashtray in a very long time. So I wanted to make sure we grab them. <laughs> and I can only imagine how many ashtrays they would have had at these funeral parlors um, way before we knew or before, Smoking was not as fashionable yeah. as it. Yeah, it was much more fashionable back then. And uh, but yeah, this is the only um, the time we talk about kind of the 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 process of actually embalming and uh, making up the dead. Yeah, and there's also like a little tile with um, transportation mm -hmm. to Ellicott City, which has me thinking that um, the the trolley and the ease ease of getting into the city was probably nice. Exactly. Yes. And I honestly really miss, I wish we had a trolley that went right into the city. That'd be so convenient from here. Yeah. Um, and yep. And, but yeah, these were also just essentially marketing materials that they would have um, uh, given out at events and help get the, the word out. And so you would have had ashtrays, you would have had these decorative tiles, you had a, whatever this little dishes and, um, and yeah, so that is how they would do that. And then we also have another thing back down here. I'm going to move it up a little closer. So we have an embalming container, um, and Mrs. Slack decided to put some fairy lights in it. So that would have been a this would have been an embalming concentrate that would have been added with other fluids to be able to um, do the job. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Um, so one last thing to look at in this exhibit is these uh, old newspaper articles about mm -hmm. the sale of the building that were actually witnessing this exhibition in? Yes. So um, original, originally this was a livery stables, um, and it was owned by a man named William J. Bewley, and he died suddenly at the age of 38, actually, so he was pretty young. And um, he 
didn't, as far as we could tell, most likely didn't have a will. So he didn't have a plan for what was going to happen to his business after he died. And so this, we have an administrator sale of valuable personal property in Ellicott City. And so this actually talks about all of the different um, services and the, how many horses and vehicles you could buy with this property. And it also mentions that you could also certain undertakers here. Um, this property was actually sold to one of his um, uh, apprentices, uh, Stephen Jones Hillsinger. And so Stephen Hillsinger was an apprentice and he purchased the property and then Hillsinger and started the Hillsingers undertakers with his brother, Leonard, and they operated the business until 1938. Um, there was also um, another sister in, along the way, and she married a man named with the last name of McNabb and McNabb became McNabb Hillsingers. And then they sold the, the actual structure of this um, of the of the undertakers to the federal government to build the post office in 1938, and then they moved the business Hillsinger McNabs up the street to Frederick Road, um, to Catonsville, yeah. where it's still McNab Funeral Home today. And then there's this newspaper article we're looking uh -huh. at says uh, the U.S. to erect a ninety thousand dollar building at the corner of Main and Hamilton Street, uh -huh. which um, at the time was probably a shocking figure. Absolutely. Yes. So um, the post office, and, and we have more information about this as well. Um, the post office here was built as a part of the New Deal, um, as a part of getting people back to work. Um, it's built out of granite, and most I think the granite was actually quarried down the street um, where the highs is now. It used to be a granite quarry there. And um, so, and it operated as a post office from about 1939 or 1940 up until 2008, actually. And then it was, and it became the Welcome Center in 2011. So wonderful, full circle. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you very much, Alex, for sharing this exhibit with us and Absolutely. putting it together. Yeah. There's a lot of history here. Yeah. Uh, it is centered around uh, undertaking. Yes. But it very much touches like a lot of Ellicott City history. It is a lot of Ellicott City history, and it was a really interesting way to look at the history here. And honestly, it was just it was such an interesting part of um, Ellicott City's legacy that it, I felt we needed to explore it a little bit more. Even if it's a little spooky. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you. Is thank there, you. So this is rounding out the EC250. Yes. Yes. What, what can people look forward to next? So for EC250, um, they actually have an original musical going on um, that'll be going on in December at the Horowitz uh, Theater over at um, HCC. And so I definitely like it's called On National Road, and it's a completely original musical. And that is kind of the last big event for EC250. Um, you'll be able to see, actually, we have some reenactors in town, um, I believe, next weekend. And so we'll have, uh, we have other reenactors and other programs going on and little crafters. And so there's been things going on all year. And, um, but yeah, the next big thing is the, um, the musical. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm going to definitely check that out. So, yeah, you should. Yeah. It should. It should be <laughs> really you. fun. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hey, folks, this is Simone Kolnick. I'm standing here with Addison Landers. Hey, Addison. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? I am well. Awesome. We actually have a very special guest, um, and we're at a very special location in Ellicott City. Hi there. <laughs> Hi. 
Nice to see you both. Nice to see you. We are talking with Miss Ellen Flynn Giles. How are you, Ellen? I'm very well, thank you. Would you like to tell our listeners where we are? This is the Museum of Howard County History, which is owned and operated by the Howard County Historical Society. Um, it was the original First Presbyterian Church of Howard County, built in about 1843, so it makes it contemporary with the former courthouse, which is right across the street. We are here in the um, congregation room yep. to discuss the Edgar Al the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe exhibit. I know I have my favorite theory, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm assuming we'll uh, learn about some other theories here today as well. That'll be fun. This is all on loan from the Poe uh, po Baltimore. Okay. Um, and I don't know if you know how obsessed Poe fans are um, with the theory of his death, but I think you could put it right up there with JFK conspiracy theorists. I mean, there are as many uh, theories thrown out and options and devotees of e any one of those um, as you would find anywhere. Since Poe was the father of the modern detective story and in fact, the genre itself. He was also an extremely talented critic. He was very, his writings are really very good in addition to the poetry and the, and the prose that he wrote. Um, but he had a very troubled life. And so the mysterious death um, sort of begins with the fact that he was, he was living in Richmond. Um, he was on his way to New York to get, take care of some business in New York. This was on the 27th of September in 1849, and he had a stop off in Baltimore in order to change trains, in order to get up there. Mm -hmm. So he arrived in Baltimore on the 27th. Um, he was not seen again until October 3rd when he was discovered delirious in clothes that did not appear to be his own, um, in and out of hallucinations, and was sent to a hospital, and he died on the 7th. Mm -hmm. And so there were certainly people who were quick to say, well, he'd always been troubled. He had issues with um, staying sober um, and that this was something brought on by himself. But there were many more who were friends of his who said, this just doesn't work. It doesn't okay. fit. And so it just so happens that the day he was discovered was election day in Baltimore. And as was uh, the case in the 19th century, gee, you could vote in a bar. Um, and so Ryan's bar was right next to Gunner's Hill, which is where he was discovered. And at that time, politics were rife with um, stories of um, corruption in um, getting people to vote in the way in which you felt was advisable. That and that, really and, new. And, that <laughs> and that plying them with liquor was certainly one way to make them amenable. And um, that was called cooping because they would shut you up in a room like a coop. Oh, like cooped up. Cooped up, oh, right? okay. And they would ply you with liquor and beat you up to coerce you into oh taking what the position that they wanted in order to do that. So there are plenty who believe that that's indeed what may have happened with him, that he was there, maybe he had something to drink or not, but that he was right for the plucking. Um, I would like to note the illustrations on these panels, I think very fitting for the style of Poe's writing. Yes. yes. Um, another reason to come in and check out this exhibit before it closes on the 27th of, of November. November. Yes. So it's here through um, Thanksgiving weekend. The highlight of the exhibit, depending on how macabre you are, <laughs> is we can make our way to where we have a recreation of his body and coffin as it would have laid in state 
for the funeral. And so he's dressed as he might have been in real life, which is in a waistcoat and neatly looking and, and hair and beard trimmed and everything wow. as would be proper. For folks who are out there sure. and, and reading about this is um, the difference between the casket and the coffin ah. and why. Yeah. <laughs> He's buried in a coffin. He is buried in a coffin, which is what we would be familiar with for anyone interested in vampires or anything like that. It's actually designed to fit the shape of the body, but also to allow for these to be stacked in a way that was meant, or to be met, um, buried side by side and yeah. take up less space. Yeah. So, but a casket, on the other hand, is simply a rectangle. People who follow Poe follow yeah. everything about Poe. Is it and on record how his wife died? His wife died like two years before he did. Okay. She had been ill for on and off um, for a long time, but she was his muse, and there are many who believe that her death led to his yeah. in what happens often with devoted couples. But I would point out that when they married, she was only 13 and was his cousin, and they lived with um, her mother for a good deal. And of how, the old, time. how old was Poe? I'm not sure that okay. I completely remember, but old okay. enough that 13 was very young. Young for him. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a lot of controversy around that as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't remember exactly um, how old he was. He was 40 when he died, so... Would you like to share your conspiracy theory? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a fan of the cooping theory. Yeah, okay, the cooping. But, you know, but I, he did have a very troubled life. I just don't think that traveling to kind of end his business um, in, New, in New York, like, would have been a time maybe for, like, a, a relapse. And, or halfway through to just decide, well, I'm going to go. And then what did happen to his yeah. clothes? And what... Why was he, you know, why did nobody see him? Where, you know, five days, you know, is a long time for no one to acknowledge that they'd seen him. It wasn't like he'd never been to Baltimore before. I mean, it's not like, you know, but and but it was the the corruption in elections was notorious. And yeah. Baltimore was maybe on the top of a list of places where this was almost routine. People kind of expected that to happen. And I think most people would recognize the um Lack of wisdom in having a polling place where you have a bar. Probably not the place to guarantee that you had informed impartial so voters so coming forward. Yes. <laughs> making making good decisions, yes, and, decisions. And, and such. So I, I agree with you. I think it makes makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But when he when that happened, how long he'd been held, yeah. um, what you know, how long to take him to deteriorate, but he certainly did not have a strong heart. So having been sub subject to something like that would probably have mm -hmm. led to, to his, his death. He wouldn't have survived. He wouldn't have survived being beaten up and, ply, you know, drinking and, and weak. Yeah. And to add more, you know, fuel to the conspiracy theories, he also, like you said, was controversial in his yeah. opinions. He didn't have fans everywhere he went. And then I, I believe it was also theorized that he... Um, had stopped drinking anyway, yes. so it wouldn't even, it would not have made sense for him to. Well, I mean, people fall off yes. the wagon yes. all yeah. the time, yeah. and and he was completely devastated by his his wife's death. I okay. mean, that that really knocked him for a loop. He looked on her as his as his muse, as his yeah. inspiration for what he would do, and they they were close as as a threesome. The the yeah. her mother and and they they were a family unit, and I think it was very very hard. So sending him to a tailspin. 
But he was really, you know, he's headed to New York to wrap some things up and everything. This was just a stop to change trains. It seems a very strange idea. Unless he fell in with somebody who said, let's go get a drink yeah. while we wait for this. And, you know, who knows? We'll, Anything. we'll probably never know. But that's part of the fun of being able to uh, explore history. Because Faulkner said, the past is never dead. In fact, it's not even past. So this exhibit also talks a lot about the clothing. So someone that might be interested in fashion yeah. or historical fashion might be interested to come check this out. And I noticed that there's talk about a waistcoat and also talk about a frock coat. Could you tell me the difference? Sure. So a waistcoat is actually a waistcoat in British, okay? But a waistcoat, so it's like a vest because for the British, a vest is an undershirt. So a frock coat would have been an outer part to a suit. So this is your frock coat on the outside. And you can see there's a vest inside. Oh, this is just okay. the same side. But often those would be, again, in the same way that you used embroidered layers of clothes in even the 16th and 17th centuries. This would be a way to kind of express your individuality because ties were usually black or white. They weren't like men get to wear bow ties and knitted things and stuff like that. So a waistcoat would have been one place where you would have been able to express a little bit of that. Okay. And it would have always, almost always had a watch pocket. Okay. So where your, your watch could be. And just another piece of craziness, if you want to understand about a cummerbund and how to put that on, the pleats should be facing so that you could stick your opera ticket in the pleat and not lose it. Oh, not your cell phone? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I always <laughs> stick my opera ticket in my cummerbund. <laughs> But that, but that gave you that gave you a you know a plate because those pleats then yeah. became like a little thing. Yeah. so so instead of putting it in my inside pocket or trying to remember where they are, so then you know that your pleat has to face up yeah. so that you're prepared. Ellen, I just want to <laughs> commend you. your passion for this too. You're a wealth of knowledge, but you're also very enthusiastic, um, and just you handle the responsibility really gracefully of like managing such an important and special and rare kind of space um, for our, for Ellicott City, for Howard oh, County. Well, thank you very much. It, to, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm a medievalist by training. Okay. I'm an analyst by profession. Okay. Uh, so I guess it kind of comes together um, that we, the things that we learn, mm -hmm. um, I don't ever feel like I stop. There's always something and then there's a thread to follow and try and figure that out because yeah. there's always something else. So I'm glad I'm enthusiastic because I love history and the stories that we learn, and it is indeed true that if we do not examine history, we are doomed to repeat it. Yes. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. And hopefully listeners can come find their own thread to pull. I hope so. Yes. Thank you so much, Ellen. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for listening, and I hope you get a chance to explore these exhibitions in person. If you're looking for more chilling tales to fill your long nights, check out the horror section in Canopy. I have George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in my queue, and if that's too creepy for you, there are over 30,000 titles free with your library card. Instructions on how to use Canopy are in the show notes.